This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Sally Colin James, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. It's such a pleasure to be chatting today. Yeah, it is. It's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You are um, a bit of a superstar in your own right. Um, Well, in my notes, that's what it says here, following a globally successful corporate career in communications and event management, Sally returned to creative writing, gaining an Australian Postgraduate Award scholarship to complete a doctor of philosophy in professional writing. Now, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who has a doctor of philosophy in professional writing. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's one of those um, higher degree by research um, candidatures that you have to do a normal theoretical doctorate as well as your creative. So, Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. Two and the one. So we're talking about her new novel, One Illuminated Thread, and it won the 2020 Colleen McCulloch Residency Award, the 2020 Varuna PIP Fellowship Award, the Byron Bay Writers Festival Mentorship Program, and a placement with the Australian Writers Mentoring Program. Her work was shortlisted or has been shortlisted from over 2,000 entries across 54 countries for the International First Pages Prize. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So did you not know all that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so, I mean, a writer's life, as my colleague likes to say, is quiet at best. And it was actually really emotional for me when we're called to put these things together, these biographical notes to really, and of course, you take snippets, the the highlights, but it is a a really good summary. It was lovely hearing you read that out, actually. There's a lot of ground to cover, as you would well know, Cheryl, from 30 years doing what you do to to reach anywhere in particular. So, Do you know what I think, Sally, when you're writing these, and you'll probably agree with this, and I haven't written a CV in years and years and years and years, but remember when we, you know, we used to put our CVs together, And when that was finished, I'd always look at it and think, wow, Mm. I'm impressed, you know, like because you don't think of your life like that. You don't think of your life in terms of how you got to where you are. And you know what, Cheryl, I reckon that that is very particular to women. Do you? Uh, Yeah, I do. I do. Mm. I I feel that it takes us to be called upon and we have that Mm. gut-wrenching moment, oh, I've got nothing to say about myself. And Mm. then you actually say, well, actually, you have plenty to say Mm. about your journey. And, Mm. yeah, I agree. It's Mm. um, Well, I think um, imposter syndrome, I guess that's probably what it is broadly, but, you know, that's only experienced by women. There's a friend of mine um, who's, uh, uh, you know, my age, middle, you know, and reasonably successful guy, and I said to him, this is only very recently, I said, oh, gosh, you know, really having imposter 
imposter syndrome. I can't remember why I was having it. It might have been the, you know, the person I was interviewing or whatever. Um, and he said, what is that? Oh, <laughs> fantastic. You know, you can't hold it against these people that, that don't understand. I know. Oh, is and he's a really well-read guy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, look, it's a balance, isn't it? And in in a lot of ways, I think that's something that we can learn from the way that the male brain works and to learn that this idea of celebrating successes and what that means and what that looks like. And I think also what I've been learning over the last few years is not only just to acknowledge, oh, yes, I did that. I'm really pleased I did that. But let that nourish do you know that feeling you get when you you can still sense you're keeping things at arm's distance and it's like I mean I've had the good fortune to meet and survive my mortality twice in this lifetime and I know for a fact what do you mean well I was critically unwell for a very long period of time and misdiagnosed and undiagnosed and ended up coming out the side of a what's known as a, a thyroid storm and under untreated that has a, a really high mortality right it's not oh, something wow. that you necessarily come yeah. out of. and I was also in an airplane explosion <laughs> so no yes, I had that that um uh yes I've, I've had many opportunities to have those moments where life collapses down on its essential mechanisms. And one thing I know for sure, for me anyway, is that when that time does come, that all that's going to matter is uh, how much I've loved, how much I've let go, and how much I have, I've taken moments to value exactly where I'm at, just by breathing. It's, it's, you know, it's not rocket science, but. No. Just, Do you know, yeah. often people say to me, you know, they're always looking for happiness or they're always looking for something else or, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've been lucky in this, but for me, it's just all in the moment. Like it, me, it's speaking to Sally. That's my happiness point today. And then after I'm going to speak to you, I'm going to go for a swim. And that's another happy point. You know, like I think they're the little things. I think people are looking for big things. There's no big things. No, there's not. There's not. Well, that famous dictum, like um, how you spend your hours is how you spend your life. Yeah. And I love that you've said that. You've just given me full body chills uh, because exactly. Mm. I mean, the mystics have been saying it for thousands of mm. years and mm. and even quantum physics knows the fact that you can't prove anything beyond yourself and mm. this moment mm. and so if it's from the mystics to the scientists mm. uh, you know that's pretty compelling I love do you think you had mentorship no. to help you well how did you come to that wisdom um, no, and I've never seen, you know, I've never been in therapy or seen a counsellor, but I've had my fair share of ups and downs. I don't know. I guess I work things out in my head. I approach life. I used to always approach life in chunks. Like if I felt overwhelmed, I just always think, okay, chunk it out. Like, you know, what's next? And just do next. Don't think past next. And then, um, but even recently, my mum died last year and mm-hmm. I've, I've been a terrible, terrible griever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was speaking to a friend at Pilates and I said to her, I'm not coping. She said, well, you're in grief. Yeah. And she said, and you take that moment and you stay in it for as long yes. as you need to. Yeah. And she said, it will go away. Well, at the time I didn't think it would ever go away, but 
but of course it does, you know. So I kind of take things as as they come. And I might ask a few people, but um, and I'm a reader and I'm a talker to people as well. Of course, I talk to so many authors that I pick up things as I go along. But, you know, I mean, I feel that I've been lucky that I have that perspective because um, oh, not everybody does. No, and yeah. it's not for the faint-hearted because what no. you're basically saying is that you are the progenitor of your own life in every mm. moment and that is um, mm. something that's trained out of women from a very young mm. age. Um, you must be the most marvellous friend actually oh, to, inhabit, to inhabit that space yeah. of, of personal, I call it radical personal responsibility. You know, I'm the beginning, the buck stops with me in my life mm. and, and like you, I feel like I, I came in with that thought in my head mm. and it can be a rough ride because in a world that values, that wants to gather often around the negative and the and the and the deconstructed and the deconstructive, to to all to feel like your you want your life to be about create creative construction and um, building building networks and connections. Oh, I'm so lucky when it comes to that. I've got so many wonderful friends, so mm. many great friendships. Do you want to talk about your plane accident? Do you want to talk about oh, that? I, well, I, look. I, the reason why I'm asking is, one, to see how it happened and, and how you came out of that. But the second reason is, and this is a cheeky reason, <laughs> but, you know, I fly a lot because I do go to San Francisco once a year and I know all my listeners know that. And then from there I went to Mexico and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Nothing more grounding than visiting a developing country nothing more grounding. But I look at the health and safety thing and I think, what the heck? I mean, what is the point? Because none of us will survive it. <laughs> so tell me otherwise. Do you want Sally? me to pinch myself for you? Are you talking <laughs> to a flesh and blood human? Well, fortunately, there was there was no collision. But the sum of it, let me say first that every cell in my being knew something was going to happen. New oh, wow. with every cell, and before it was on a, a small plane over remote islands, and wow. I had said to my father-in-law, "I don't feel right. Something doesn't feel right," and I was well aware. And we had to get smaller and smaller planes to go to our location. At one stage, when it when the smallest plane landed, and I was looking out at it, and I was just glaring at it. I just knew there was a photo of my face. I was looking at that plane as if it was death itself. And when I got on the plane, I couldn't calm, I couldn't settle, and I just thought, I have to meditate. So I, shut, oh, wow. I, I said to my husband, I'm sitting near that engine. I don't feel okay about that engine. And I went and sat myself and there's a photo of me staring at this engine. And then I thought, right, okay. How many I, people I, on the plane? Uh, I think there was, maybe there was 15. Um, oh, wow. It was an 18, maybe there was, maybe there was 10. I think it was an 18 seater. So not right. tiny, tiny, yeah. that, the tiny, tiny came later. I did my meditation. And as I was coming out, I just said, right, I just, I need to need to know, am I where I'm meant to be? And if I'm not, I don't care who I embarrass, I'll just get off this plane. I'll just say, mm. stop the plane, I'm off. And as I opened my eyes, the pilot, because it was so small I could see the dash, he flicked on all his buttons on the, the panel and two very important numbers in my life, um, 1111 and 1118, so 1111 and 1118, just flashed up on the screen. And I thought, okay, right, 
I feel that therefore I'm where I'm meant to be. Um, and I had to meditate again as we took off and when I opened my eyes and looked at the engine and the engine exploded <clears throat> and the, the, there was a palaver kerfuffle, people tried to jump off the plane um, and I, you know, was busy calming people down and we had to nosedive to turn engines off and turn them back on and by the time we landed, it was, um, you know, <laughs> what I realised subsequently over the following 12 months was that I was a completely different person. My life didn't flash before my eyes, but I did have this extraordinary moment where I realised that everybody that I loved knew it, that I hadn't squandered a moment to express my the way I valued those people in my mm. life, that was a really extraordinary mm. moment. And I also therefore said to myself, so if I do come out the other side of this, it's it's time to stop being so hard on myself. Uh, that took another, you know, because it's I just, that, I mean, what more is there than to kindness? Mm. And, I mean, it sounds so obvious. But it was a real journey. Sally, I just want to give you a hug at this moment. Oh, so I'll give I you know, a virtual hug. You. Oh, thank you. Mm. Oh. And, you know, though, when you have those transformative moments mm. and you realise the value in a single human life, which is so easy for me to look out to you and mm. say, gosh, you must be the most marvellous friend. You know, do I say that to myself in the mirror? I had to learn to practise it, to really mm. look myself in the eye um, but I, it took me a year to realise that the woman that got on that plane didn't get off mm. and that part of part of me learning about grief, which has certainly been a big part of my life for as long as I can remember, was to understand that you, you literally, your DNA changes mm. and to own the fact that that person you were no longer is. It's so strange how painful that is to a human psyche Mm. so the moment I actually Mm. said goodbye to that was the moment I could begin healing although then that sort of triggered this underlying autoimmune condition that was just misdiagnosed Mm. it was so weird Mm. I was Mm. clearly meant to go through it because I went to doctor after doctor Mm. it's just (laughs) it's so weird do you know um People have been asking me about grief recently because I've been quite public with it. I feel as though people don't talk about it enough and I bring it up. It makes people uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. But one of the things that I say to people, and I think this refers to what you were saying there, I said that I felt, well, I say I feel unanchored and I feel that the life that I lived before is different to the life I live now. And that's only in a matter of a year, yeah. Yes. Really, you know, and it's so perfect we're speaking about this because threaded through the novel is absolutely the fundamental notion Mm. of grief. And I was interested to hear you say before, I was a terrible griever and my heart just broke because that of course we know that's not true. You're mm. a beautiful griever mm. because you had the grace and the fortitude and you have obviously had to summon the stamina. This is the phrase I started to use with myself. Okay, I'm not going to abandon myself. 
because you know that moment you can feel and and, and you're running from that opportunity. Mm. So the fact that you were willing to inhabit it, you know, mm. and then on a deeper level, Cheryl, you change the metaphysical infrastructure of your nature. Mm. And that wonderful experiment that was done where I don't know what they're looking for, but physicists put two pianos in a room and they cut out any potentiality for through the floor, through the walls, through through the air vibration. And one of the things that was discovered was when you pressed, for instance, middle C on one piano, the string of the middle C of the other piano started vibrating. You know, the new ages would call it harmonic concordance. But for me, that's the, that's the very nature of interactive existence. And mm. so when you are enmeshed in that space and I, and we're not abandoning ourselves by nature of that resonance, we give other people permission. Mm. So, so to, I'm really interested to know, how did you, what, when you're managing that, how do you manage that discomfort from others when you talk about this subject of grief? Um, well, I'm a crier. Yeah. So it's very obvious. So usually I cry. and uh, But I keep going because I put it in a way that's storytelling because that's what I do. That's my job, getting stories out of people. And so I tell a story usually about her or her death or what happened after her death because it was traumatic. And, yeah, I I didn't know we'd get here today, but anyway. Oh, you this know, is me, the beauty. Me neither, this is perfect. <laughs> this is the beauty this of the podcast. This, yes, mm. yes. So I also, I, I, I kind of post on um, Instagram a bit, and I wrote a little while ago, I had gone to a funeral of a friend of mine that had lost her child. And that was a few years ago now. And I, the pain in me when I saw her, where well, I couldn't work out, like the pain of choosing the outfit that you're going to wear to the funeral of your child. Like, do you ever wear that again? How do you, how do you even choose that outfit in the morning? Well, that was a strong feeling for me when my mother died. And of course, you know, um, my mother was a practicing Maronite, so it was going to be black for sure. But when I put the dress on, I kept thinking about, will I ever wear this again? Now, to some people, that sounds like vanity or, you know, banal, banality, but it is absolute grief. And I wrote a post on my Instagram about it, and I was criticized a lot. Like, why am I th talking about? It wasn't even fashion. It was just about clothes, you know. Oh, and I thought, you're not reading into this enough. You know, you're not understanding what I'm saying here, that these feelings continue for a very long time. Yes, but I, I keep going, yeah. you know. Yes, I, I, yeah. only, I was at a lunch on Saturday and somebody brought up something and I told the story of her in the nursing home, you know. Mm -hmm. She had dementia and uh, and I would go there, we would all go there, and she was working at reception. So <laughs> she would get up in the morning and go to reception. Those poor nurses, they were wonderful, wonderful oh. care she received. And her job was to work at reception. So oh. even on, she never stopped working. Yeah. Anyway, I think in storytelling is how it gives, I think, people comfort and purpose. I feel that once I started telling stories about it, people were more comfortable with my grief. It surprises me that something so tender and poignant, because the uh, um, about what you were going to wear and mm. what that meant, 
um, I'm surprised that that there was criticism around that. I can only imagine it came from the fear of actually anchoring into the total raw slayed. I mean, because really we're arriving completely and utterly naked to all mm-hmm. of these moments in our mm-hmm. life. And really the deeper thing about what you're saying is how do you dress that? How do you dress the undressable nakedness mm-hmm. of 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 where we're flayed mm-hmm. and 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 you know just even the breeze hurts your skin as it mm-hmm. as it blows. Mm-hmm. Um I, I, I find that beautiful that you've shared that. And it in some ways, it doesn't surprise me at all that we've gotten straight to this point because it is an essential anchoring of self to self, of humanhood to mm. humanhood. And, you know, quite frankly, a part of me feels in the depths of my being. It's also part of female eldership to, to, to carry the chain of life and carry the chain of death. Mm. And I started to write um, a nonfiction work a couple of years ago called Awakening the Western Elder. And of course, One Illumined Thread is really a different angle coming in at female eldership. So really, Cheryl, what you're also doing is not not only providing a forum for discussion of these often unarticulable mm. <laughs> concepts, but you are reinstating an aspect of eldership that mm. I personally, in my humble opinion, believe is essential for us right now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah. Sally, you're so right too. And particularly when you get to somebody my age, you know, parents are dying. That's, and she died in the order, you know, in the proper order. She was, you know, 82, and that's what happens. But then I started to think about all my friends who lost their parents, and no one ever talked about it. No one, and they must have been as in deep pain as I was, you know. 
just the sadness of losing it. Not the shock, not the horror. It wasn't early. It wasn't, you know, it was the order. But there's a deep sadness that people just don't acknowledge. So I've started asking people, you know, are your parents alive? Or when did they die? How did you feel? No, we've got to get on to you, Sally. Wow. No, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was so interesting. Tell me, I want to know how you came to writing fiction. Oh yes, yeah. Well, oh, you know, I, I love that question, and it's a it's a very clear answer for me. I had been uh, in the normal corporate world, and going back and, and that's forth, hard as a as a oh gosh, because I used to sit around a boardroom table with. All yeah. men, twice my yeah. age. Yeah. I remember finding this cartoon when I was working in London and it was about 20 men sitting around a boardroom table and one woman and the director is saying, oh, that's a wonderful idea, Mrs Smith. Now, would one of the men like to make it? <gasps> yeah, wow. <laughs> and wow. I just thought... I just lived and breathed that, even as yeah. a modern woman. But um, I remember yeah. over the speaker, there was always this wonderful announcement of um, a Sri Lankan colleague, and it was such a wonderful name. And every time I heard, I thought, I must go and talk, track down Mahansen and talk to him and find his story, uh, I find out about his story. And when I did and discovered about this raging, you know, 50-year Sri Lankan war, and I just, I don't know, something in me, it just struck me as so wrong that we worked just, you know, offices away from each other. And he had that history and I had mine. And I was driving past Deakin University one day and had an awful long day again, 80 hour Mm. week, Mm. turned right and thought, I want to write a children's book that discusses the uh, war in Sri Lanka about young men. And so that became my honours thesis. And then from there, I so while you were working full time, you were studying. Yes, that was really. So that really ricocheted me back into the craft of fiction writing as a way to both uh, explore and learn and share. Because there's, to me, coming from a more academic background, I guess, there's a things are changing in that world now, and um, and books are becoming and texts are becoming more conversational, and people are taking you know fictive narrative art crafts to the world of nonfiction. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing to do. Mm. But I went to Sri Lanka and did a long research trip there, <clears throat> and when I came back, I thought I really love the idea of of exploration and sharing through the art of fiction. I was running a counselling practice for a while in Melbourne and I suddenly felt this sense of urgency that the one-on-one was too slow. I thought this is going too slow or the subjects we need to cover and it seemed natural, therefore, for me to take the juice and and the marrow and the fertility of the issues that were being raised and put them into a form of storytelling. It just seemed a very natural step. And I think, you know, we, as just referring back to what we were discussing earlier, this is the reason why I'm where I am because I'm not just reading fiction, but I'm talking to fiction writers. And maybe in all of them, there is a counseling session. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm learning all the time from characters, from stories, from writers. Yes. No. It's it, it's very, very true. And everything, every experience and provides a richness 
that can offer the opportunity of clarity. And I know that sounds didactic. I'm not just preaching that as that I've read it somewhere. That is how I have decided to live my life because the alternative to that seemed to be victimhood and suffering. Mm. So to be able to practice objectivity, and I think that's another wonderful thing that fictive devices allow us uh, us to do mm-hmm. is to find those other shoes in habit. You know, most people, it's interesting to me, and I don't know whether it's technology or whether it's industrialization or commercialization or bureaucracy, you know, bureaucracy. I just, over my travels over the last 20 years, I've just, I've noticed um, a propensity for people to be closing in on that objectivity. You know, I just feel it should be a subject at school. Yeah, absolutely. Walk in the other shoes. Mm, mm, I do too. I I feel Trent Dalton said this to me once. He was in the office um, and he said to me, you know, readers have empathy. Yes. And I should have known that because I read all the comments on our Facebook page. I read, you know, people interact with me directly all the time. And they're always wonderful interactions. Like I very, very rarely get a comment or we as a business even get a comment that's, you know, that's not productive or constructive or flattering or, you know, sharing, you know, sharing their own. Yeah, it it is wonderful. But also you, you, but you as the director of how that's operating, it's, you know, it was clear to me in the first minute of our conversation, it, it does like in any corporate um, environment where it's just awful relations between staff and, and mm. everything that can go become so toxic. I mean, again, that's something that 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 you can own as being the progenitor of that environment mm. and that that tone and that ethos that we come mm. together with. You know the the um, famous way that you can tackle very difficult subjects with children, and you sit and you draw together, and there's a third. There's a third point of focus and nothing provides that more beautifully than a book other than a pen. But to um, come to that point of focus with everything we bring, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to leave some of it behind, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it all comes with us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to tell you this story. I don't know how relevant it is, but I'm going to tell you because it's just happened recently. So, and and for for our listeners and people that know me, they know this. Um, My niece, Rebecca, uh, had two children many years ago. Anyway, I wanted to help her out because she lived near me. And I said to her, you know, that I would pick those kids up one day a week. And they were little, you know, they were in daycare at the time. And I would, you know, feed them bath, whatever. And she would pick them up, you know, and she always comes and we have a glass of wine together. So it's it's a beautiful evening. And, you know, she's eternally grateful always for me doing that for her. But it was a gift to me to have those boys was totally a gift to me. But as they grew up, you know, they stopped coming. So one of them finished up last year. So he's no longer here at the local school. He's gone to high school. I did a beautiful post on Instagram wishing him all the best and I wouldn't be getting him once a week anymore and whatever. Anyway, last week she told me that he doesn't want to give that up. Oh, look, I mean, 
Is that a gift well, or is that a gift? Oh my goodness. Yeah. And and you know, let that sink into your marrow. Mm. You know, you know, I'm mm. feeling you as you're feeling that. And I can mm. even still feel that part of you where yes, you have it into your heart and you have it into your mind, but just take that into your marrow. Mm. and let that do its work, mm. gosh. And I yes. thought, what other good thing could happen to me this week? I, oh. That was just, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so that, that happened yeah. That happened only yeah. last week. So anyway, I feel so gosh. privileged and lucky. All right, so I want to go back to one idea, and I know you're really accomplished, but it's one thing wanting to write fiction, but it's the other thing doing it. Tell me how that was for you. Well, and I I love your question so much. And to be honest, because I have a very powerful sense of myself in the cosmos, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, I'm very aware of the multidimensionality of life, very at ease with that, very at ease with the big picture. Mm -hmm. So coming down into the flat page, words on a page picture, uh, it really, I had to really train my brain to cope Mm. with that. It felt very uncomfortable in my mind. And of course, then we work out that it's not just through the processes of the mind, it's through the heart, it's through the body. So for me, I took great strength from works like Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Mm. Creek Mm -hmm. and Annie Prue, The Shipping News. I just wanted to engage with writers whose wordsmithery while having such brevity and and conciseness Mm. or concision, whatever the word is there, didn't skimp on the richness. And I feel like that took me a long time to even even begin to think I could uh, write a coherent chapter. It, it, It wasn't a natural, it wasn't a natural medium for me, the writing. Um, And I'm so glad that I stuck with it because to understand what's at play in that fiction writing moment, because everything is on the line in terms of what you give away about the moment and about yourself and about the context and about the word and developing that sense of which, of course, I just feel like I'll spend the rest of my life <laughs> trying to aim for the heights of the likes of Dill- Dillard and Prue. You know, every time I pick up a page <laughs> of there and read it, I just think, oh, my goodness. How Where did the idea come from? For One Illumined Thread? Well, I was uh, researching my doctorate in the Uffizi Gallery and very unwell, didn't know what was wrong at the time, and just trouble reading a map, took a mm. wrong turn, and mm-hmm. ended up in front of this two and a half metre by one and a half metre painting of two women, an elder woman on the right, a younger woman on the left, and the way that the elder woman, woman was looking at that younger woman, literally mm. in the busy chaos of the Uffizi Gallery, stopped me in my tracks. And I didn't realise it was the Virgin Mary and St Elizabeth for all my Catholic schooling. To me, I was just there in front of two women and the tenderness of the moment I felt like I'd walked into. I felt, felt, literally mm. felt like I was part of, 
of that moment and the emotion that erupted in me about that yearning to, I guess, feel seen in the way that Ella Sheva is her Aramaic name, St. Elizabeth. Ella Sheva was looking at Mariam. That's the Virgin Mm. Mary. Mariam is the Mm. Aramaic name. But also to stand and witness other women in that way. And I felt like I'd been good at one part of it, but not the other part, like the giving Mm. and not the receiving. Mm. So it was very loaded. And I thought one day I'll find a way to talk about this in the scheme of female connection. Mm. And even when I began, when I got the calling three years ago, I thought, oh, I'm not ready to write that. So as I started to research the painting and found out that Mariotto Albertinelli was a bit of a carouser and when he died very early, left his wife with all his debts and she was being chased down by um, the uh, artistic elite at the time and high renaissance Florence, I thought, wow, you know, here's a man obviously capable of depicting such tenderness. You know, who? what was his muse for that? He must have loved and cared about women. And so that whole idea of thinking about me as a modern-day woman standing before a Renaissance painting of ancient Israel women and who the women behind that moment was and how to talk about that relationship that I felt I stepped into in that moment, that, in essence, was eternal. Mm. It was still continuing. The the story of Elisheva and Mariam, it's 2,000 mm. years. And then mm. Mariotto's work and Antonia, his real-life wife, I found a little writ in ta- um, Latin that I had translated that was summoning Antonia before the judge and she owed all, like, and big debts for the time mm. that mm. just wouldn't have been possible mm. um, for a woman in her position. And it just felt to me that it was an opportunity to talk about these women as human, to take them out of their iconic representations, out of the Bible, out of High Renaissance Florence, out of modern Australia with COVID and flooding and bushfires and mm. the terrible bereavements that, um, mm-hmm. that I'd been experiencing. So, and, and to find that thread, that illumined thread of women connecting with women through the quiet work and art of women, Mm. conversation, exploration in their own arts. Of course, giving Ella Sheva the modality of glassblowing would, you know, highly likely have not been the case or Antonia paint making, Mm. highly not knew the case, but it felt important to, we don't know, there's things we'll dig up. And it's the beauty of fiction, you know. It is the beauty of fiction. Exactly. Uh, Sally, we're out of time. We're way out of time. But I just want to say thank you so much. What a illuminating conversation it's been. I've enjoyed it very much. Um, Congratulations on the book. And I'm sure you'll be writing another. I certainly will. And thank you for your beautiful grace and um, humility in giving me the forum of a space to um, hold our experiences of grief Mm. and joy and not turn away from ourselves or each other. I've loved Mm. it. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. 
We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.